Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. Uh, I am delighted to say I'm here with Mike Etor. He is the author of Trust-Based Leadership, uh, an ex-US Marine Infantry Officer and the founder of Fidelis Leadership Group. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Richard. I am uh, privileged to be here. Uh, I was delighted when your assistant reached out to me. So uh, yes, I'm here. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, just before we came on, you you filled in the blanks a little bit about that intro. Yeah, just the, sort of the, the the time you spent in the military and, you know, before you came to writing this book. Sure. I was, uh, I, uh, I'm an old guy now, so I'm 64, but I say 64 is the new four. So I'm, uh, I'm young at heart. Um, so I enlisted in the Marine Corps uh, right out of high school in 1974, served four years as an enlisted man, got out in 1978, went to college for four years with the intention of earning a college degree so I could go back in the Marine Corps as a commissioned officer, did that, uh, stayed until retirement in 1998, and was fortunate to land with a really great company, a professional services a staffing company, IT staffing, IT and finance and accounting staffing called K-Force. And I joined them in 1999. And uh, the bad news was the dot-com crash hit. Uh, the good news was there was so much chaos in the company that there was opportunity everywhere. So I was able to be rapidly promoted. They were throwing me all sorts of responsibilities. So Fast forward five years, Richard, um, I was now a C-level executive in charge of most of the company's non-sales uh, functions, the IT department, marketing, human resources, purchasing. Uh, we had part of finance. We had a, a pretty robust presence in Manila in the Philippines. So if it, if it wasn't involved in selling, um, it, you, it pretty much fell under my purview. And I finished up my last 10 years at K-Force in that role, in that senior, you know, C-level executive role. Retired in 2013. I can't say enough good about the folks I worked with at K-Force. I mean, what a, what a great team. What a great education. Uh, you know, my theme is trust-based leadership. And and they just trusted me right off the bat. I mean, they knew I had been a Marine, so they knew, okay, here's a good guy, great patriot and all that. But the level of trust and authority that they gave me right off the bat, um, I, it was just, no pun intended, textbook. Um, but was that because they saw something in you, in your countenance and demeanor, or was that pervasive through the culture? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I was really the first, in a way, military person to get into the company. and so. I think rightfully so. They looked at me and said, well, can we know he's a, a good man and all of that? But it was, I think very quickly they realized this guy doesn't really know much about our business, but he can organize things. He can conduct meetings. He can plan really well. And after about six months, my, my boss, who then was the COO, he, he said, you know, Mike, I knew all of what I just said, Richard, I knew you'd be a good man. I'm a fan of the Marines and all of that. You want to know the number one thing that surprises me the most about you that I wasn't expecting? I'm like, okay, what is that, Larry? And he said, the fact that you can write. He said, your, your writing skills and ability to put an email out to a few thousand people and walk them through it very succinctly, like, okay, here's the situation. Here's what we need to do. 
Here's what we need to do when it, when it needs to be done by, here's what I'm going to give you. Here's what I need. You know, he said, your ability to do that is really excellent. And I'm like, well, okay, well, thank you. I'll take that. And I said, well, to be honest with you, I, I learned all of that in the Marine Corps. I don't consider myself exceptional from a Marine Corps standard. I think what you're telling me is that this, this skill, these qualities are not all that common in this company. And he said, yes, and I've experienced enough to know that they're not all that common in most companies. So I think once people saw that I could, I was a quick learner and that I could really organize and harness effort toward a unified goal, uh, people started deferring to, to me from a planning standpoint. And, uh, and they saw the light, so to speak. You know, I, uh, I, I like to think that for a while there, I was learning far more from them than they were from me, but to their credit, I mean, I worked with very open-minded business leaders who, you know, after being in business 10, 20, 30 years or more accomplished people said, okay, you know, this, this guy's good. Despite his lack of business experience, this guy has some skills that quite honestly exceed ours. So it was the perfect scenario for an executive team. Um, there were strengths that I brought and there were other people on that executive team that had forgotten more about certain business skills than I would ever know or ever need to know. And so it really was, they didn't insist that, that I become an accountant, so to speak, or a finance guy or a marketing guy. They, they wanted me to be an executive in the purest sense, a generalist that could really put his arms around various functions and, and departments and, and get them to peacefully coexist and, and align toward, align all efforts toward the company's goals and objectives. And, I like to say that I'd done that, but I have to, I have to stay humble and say, I, I got a lot of the praise and recognition, but I had some incredible people working with me and in my organization. So after some tough, after some initial rough guidance to them, I mean, I really had, after a few years, Richard, I just had to step out of their way. They were so good. Uh, right. So at some point I found that the main value I could add in the meeting was, Hey, I, I brought coffee fellas, you know, <laughs> I mean, I'm just here to watch, but I brought you coffee, you know? And right. so it was, a, it was, a, it was a, a joy to watch as a leader. I mean, one of my biggest things is to, to develop leaders and all of that. So anyway, that's a long winded answer. I, 15 years with K-Force, took a year off, uh, thought I was done. Um, and then I realized during that year, Richard, the 2013 to 14, I probably went to lunch, had coffee, dinner with 30 or 40 people who were seeking my advice. And I loved it. And I realized I was coaching. And right. so that got me intrigued. And I'm like, you know, Mike, you're not, you're a fifth gear kind of guy from an automotive perspective you're you're kind of drifting around here in second gear and it's not good for you. So I opened up my own leadership practice, Fidelis Leadership Group, and I, I began teaching and coaching senior executives that bled downward into the rest of the organization chain of command. So that's what I do now. I, I, I coach and consult uh, leaders uh, in all industries, all size companies. I do, you know, eight, eight person startups all the way up to I've I've been in a couple Fortune 500s uh, for for some engagement, so it's really good. And to put a capstone on it, um, this is what I'm meant to do. I think the previous 24 years in the Marine Corps and the previous 15 years as a business executive has set me up now to what I plan to do for the rest of my life, and it's helped develop leaders. So I, I have the best job in the world, Richard. 
Fantastic. Yeah. And, and as somebody who's been involved in developing leaders, yeah, it's it's wonderfully gratifying, you know, to see people yeah. evolve. And uh, yeah, I mean, you talk a lot, of, a lot about it in the book. I've made a, two notes from your intro there. Uh, this point about planning, and it comes up in the book, right? You reflect on how effective you were at planning. And I suppose the dearth of planning skills around you that you experienced when you first entered K-Force. And then this, this second point, rough guidance. So I'll come back to that. I'm sure you've got some good stories of, of how that manifested. Um, so first of all, planning. So what, you know, how do they teach you to plan in, in the Marines? I'm guessing that's where you first get trained in this. That's, that's mm -hmm. perhaps different. Uh, and that relates to this theme of trust that you could share. Yeah, I think the best way, I always try and present things so your, your audience can relate to it. Um, the best way I can, the Marines, Marine leaders are trained to plan. I, I believe if you've ever gone, you know, you're certainly you've taken commercial airline flights. And if you've ever, while you were boarding, get held up in line, you know, the line is stacked up and people are trying to get their seats. If you peek in the cabin, often you'll see both pilots with a, with a, a checklist in their lap. And they're checking off items, you know, like, yeah, we've got enough fuel. We've got this. We've got that. I, I've never seen a checklist, but I know they're doing a checklist. And similarly with with doctors, you know, I, I have a few physician friends and they say, no, Mike, I'm telling you, we just don't go in and wing it by memory. When I go in and do a hip replacement, we have a pre-op checklist. And then during the surgery, it's split into phases and and we check those items off to make sure that I don't leave some instrument inside that person's body and sew it up in her, you know? And so that's how we're trained to do is go down a checklist at first. And then as we get more experienced, it becomes intuitive. So teaching it, I teach the checklist. Um, but after doing it now for 40 plus years, um, a lot of it is... Uh, is really in my leadership DNA right now. But I, I tell everybody, um, when in doubt, revert to the checklist. Whenever I make a boo-boo and a mistake and all that I'm saying, you, you know, you dolt, you know, you, you went without the checklist and you forgot steps three and five, you know, or you didn't pay enough attention or you, or you miss, you know, you misaligned the sequence of them. So it's, uh, it's good. You know, it's, it's how I do it. Right. And is there a particular story from your time in the Marines you can think of where, Either you missed a, ch a, a checklist item or, or it worked really to your advantage. Yes. I, uh, I, I like to tell stories to, you know, I mean, I, I, I like to think I've done well in both of my careers. Um, and so to, to keep myself honest, I always tell stories where I just completely blew it. So I was in charge one time of a live fire exercise and it was a very challenging thing to design. And, uh, so I, it was going to be firing and maneuver where you have people firing weapons, but we're running and shooting and jumping over obstacles. It was, it's dangerous. You know, it's, you have to have your act together. Everybody has to know who, where everybody is. And so I, I, you know, if I say so myself, I had a brilliant plan. It was all there. Everybody showed up. And then uh, my boss came over and said, Mike, you know, I, I hate to be the one to put a, a damper on the festivities here. He said, uh, everything looks great, but I, uh, I don't see the ammunition. 
<laughs> so, I've got Marines showing up, you know, we're not started yet, but I, you know, the trucks are coming, Marines are getting off, like they're going to shoot. And I'm like, uh, maybe not, you know, <laughs> I forgot to order the ammo. <laughs> so the reason why is because I forgot to coordinate effectively with the Sergeant whose primary job in that exercise was to deliver the ammo and he had had a family issue the week prior. So he, or ordinarily he would have come and saved me like, uh, sir, would you like to order ammo? You know, he would keep me honest. He wasn't available for that. And, uh, so yes, I mean, uh, um, you know, imagine a doctor showing up in the emergency room with no scalpel and they forgot the anesthesia. I mean, it's probably not going to go well, you know? So, uh, I deviated from the checklist. I failed to supervise. I mean, how can you have a live fire exercise? I mean, it's like going and the civilians will understand this. How, how do you go hunting and all of a sudden find yourself in the woods with, with, without your, your shotgun? I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a requirement, you know? So yeah, I, I, I blew that one big time and I've had similar experiences, uh, in the business world where, you know, Myself and my team, I've allowed ourselves to get so mesmerized by the high level stuff that you forget to to order the coffee, so to speak. You know, like we get, we're so there was one time we were so focused on on acquiring this new technology back then called rack servers. I'm sure you know what they. I mean, you know, we were so enamored of this that we went all the way through the approval process and realized we hadn't hadn't really selected a vendor. Like, okay, we've got approval, we've got budget, but like, you know, we, we probably should have been talking to various vendors along the way to see which, which brand we're going to use and what kind of deal we're going to get. And so uh, there's, there's been several of those. And so the way, even with all my experience, the way to avoid that is back off and, and I don't care if my experience allows me to go through the checklist fairly quickly, go through the checklist, make sure you're not forgetting something because from personal experience, Richard, my own, you know, I'm a pretty savvy guy experience, but I still very, uh, very prone or, or very capable of forgetting uh, the ammunition, so to speak. Right. And just as you say that, I mean, I, I've, I'm working in a co-working space today and I always bring my equipment for the podcast and I've, I've forgotten my webcam. So I've got a slightly worse quality <laughs> video, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's like, right, as you're saying. That's okay. Yeah. yeah. Um. And so when you came into K-Force and you talk about this, um, was, that, was that the first thing that you noticed in terms of how people were planning differently as a lack of, of checklists? Or you know, what was it that was different that, that you yeah. observed that was contributing to an inability to plan effectively? Great question. Um, it took me a while, uh, first of all, to transition to the business world. And you know, I went in knowing that I really didn't know much at all about business. And I, I, I falsely allowed myself to believe that, you know, I am a complete minnow in a world of sharks here, you know, like I, I don't know. So just sit down, shut up. This is the ex-US Marine. I mean, that in itself. Yes. Yes. You know, I just, just shut up and listen. And it was during my second meeting, they allowed me in the executive team meetings right away. They're halfway through my executive team meeting. I, my gut instinct said, okay, Mike, you don't, you don't know what they're talking about but you, you do know that they're not talking about it well. They're not planning. There's a whole lot of I don't knows being thrown across the conference call and all of that. And, and by the third executive, by the third week, 
I knew that uh, I was surrounded by good people, good entrepreneurs, but we had some serious coordination and planning issues. And, and to the defense of them and the company, when I joined K-Force, K-Force uh, was really at the time, it was a publicly traded company. It had just concluded a year before that maybe a eight-year buying spree of companies. So K the K-Force that I joined, Rich, was really a, a, a melting pot of, I think, 12 companies. And they acquired them, but they did not integrate them well. So in many cases, we had a dozen compensation plans, widely varying technologies. And, and you know, you, you, your audience will know, I mean, 12 companies rolled into one, but not integrated a scenario for a nightmare. And so that's what I rolled into. And well, we didn't get that email because we're on this system or, well, you want us to do this by Wednesday, but we don't have access to that, that system or process or whatever. And so uh, I like to think that someone like me got to the company with the right skills at the right time uh, because my lack of business knowledge um, in a way was an asset in, in some cases at first, because I had no biases. All I know is they told me, Mike, we'd like you to figure this out by the end of the year. How do we migrate everybody to our, our premier payroll system? And so while I didn't know technically how to do that, my military planning background, it, the, the, the steps to get that done are no different than, Mike, we need you to take your task force and seize that objective no later than 1200 Thursday. Well, you, 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 okay, 1200 Thursday it is, and then you just start reverse planning. So many of the obvious questions starting from the reverse planning process really are highly adaptable to the business world. And, and, and people saw, okay, if this guy throws his slides up, Immediately, we start filling in the gaps. And, and sure enough, 45 minutes later, it's a relative term. We've gone from complete chaos and organization to a little bit less. And at least now we know what's expected of us before we meet again tomorrow. So it was, Right. Uh, but there are a lot of people. So what is it on those slides, right? You know, what, what specifically were you calling out that, that yep. allowed you to be effective there? Always start off with the mission statement, like, okay, the CEO has uh, has requested, which basically means he has decreed that we're going to go everybody on the same payroll system by the end of the year. And it's April 13th right now. So the mission is, you know, payroll system, you know, integration, end of the year. And then I, the next slide would be, you know, big issues and, and people would start saying, Mike, uh, I'm an IT guy. I don't think that's enough time. Boom, I put time up. So now we have time. Uh, the finance, you know, chief financial officer was looking at me with sweat on his brow saying, Mike, we've, I know these things aren't cheap and we've not budgeted for that. So we've not, so financial, you know, funding, you know, and we would just go down the line. And the IT guy would say, uh, it's not only, we don't have enough time, Mike, but I can tell you to do this, we don't have, certain skill sets in our IT group to accomplish this. We, an, an analogy, they, I used to make them use first aid or medical analogies, the human body or automobile analogies. He said, Mike, what I'm telling you is we can, we can drive this car. We just cannot build it. 
we're going to have to bring in some external augmentation to help us unify the databases and, you know, there's got to be training and all of that stuff. I'm like, oh, so that got thrown up there. And then I would take each of those big bullet items and then I'd create a slide for them. And we say, okay, let's, let's talk about time now. And uh, of course the non-techies wanted to say, well, it's, well, you know, the CEO said by the end of the year, by God, it's going to be by the end of the year. And and the, and the IT, you know, the chief executive, uh, CIO would say, well, uh, I hear you, but I can tell you that I would be derelict if I told you I could do that with my present staff and present skills and talent. Uh, if you insist on end of the year, I'm not fighting that. What I'm telling you is it, it, it connotates a relatively huge uh, augmentation of my staff. And he goes, now, if you tell me that, that I'm going to get that augmentation, we can do this. Then I can sign up for the end of the year. Unaugmented, I'm telling you right now, I would be lying if I raised my hand. Oh, yeah, we can do that, you know. And so just getting people to honestly like that, Richard, that, that made the non-techies, the executives in the room sit back and say, Okay, you're, what you're saying is if you get beefed up with the right people and the right staff, you have, you have confidence that we can pull this off. And he said, yes, but without it, it would be like, fellas, I remember him, he said, fellas, it'd be like me, the CEO, looking at you saying, you need to triple sales by the end of the year. And you would all look at him and say, okay, uh, I mean, that's, I mean, I, I understand an increase in sales, but triple sales with no additional sales force. I mean, that's a, that's a mean trick, you know? And so just by putting those, just by providing those high level bullets up there, which are pretty intuitive. And I know your audience is like, well, no kidding, Mike, that's not hard. It's not hard. Um, I found that once you put the bullets up and, and kind of refereed the conversation and people realized, you know, and every now and then I would have to go all the way back to the first lot. Remember folks, this is the mission. This is the mission. Now you're talking about changing our compensation plans and that's an entirely different discussion. Right. You know, well, if we're going to do that, we got to change content, you know, uh, nope, hang on. That's a different discussion. And I believe that's for my, my counterpart, the chief sales officer. And he says, yes, absolutely right. We need to get on the system commissions. Yes, we do have to take 12 commission plans uh, and, and codify them into one. But to Mike's point, that is a that's a more of a paper exercise and us talking about it. In the meantime, Mike and his folks need to make sure that the system is ready to receive the new compensation plan. That the compensation plan is just a matter of keystrokes and data entry. Uh, we need to we need to be all the data entry must all go in the you know the the premier pro uh, system by the end of the year. So I hope this is illustrating you know what I'm what I, what I was sitting through and all of that. I mean it wasn't. I like to say that I added value. I didn't add magical value, Richard. It was just that they were um, great people, mostly from a sales or finance background, and most had no experience in organizing uh, large groups of you know moving parts and 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 focusing, managing on the end state. So actually, one of the first terms I taught them was mission and end state. What's the desired end state? The end state, end state. The end state is we're all on one payroll program by the end of the year. And it was gratifying because within a few meetings, I would hear someone else say, no, Harry, that's not, the end state is we're all getting on that payroll pro, you know, uh, system and all that. So it was, they, they, had, they adopted these terms 
very, very quickly. Um, and so it was gratifying to see. So I, I find Richard, my, you know, in my business career, I think the business world is very much a meritocracy and most good companies. And when people see something that's working, uh, the vast majority of people are not too proud to say, Hey, I love this. I, I wish we were doing this years ago. We're doing it this way from now on. I, right. that's how it worked with me. Yeah. Well, and what I'm sort of divining from this is that there's, some, there's absolutely something about this, you know, one thing and do it well. Right. And we've, you yeah. know, this mission, we, you know, we're just doing this one thing. Let's focus on this. I mean, we had a, author of the book radical focus on this show who yeah. talked exactly about this this importance of business and business will just load on you know more and more goals right into a particular yeah. quarter or time frame but this idea of just having the one thing focus on that and get that done and then the second thing it sounds yeah. like what you're doing is you're bringing all of these voices you know out into the open right onto the table Yes. Is, am yes. I right there are they, are they No you're out, you're absolutely right I mean as far as bringing all the voices up I, I think there were, uh, you know, so think about it. you've got executives now. Uh, I think we had executives on the team from maybe six or seven different legacy companies. And, and some of those companies used to be business enemies, so to speak. And some of them weren't all that happy about getting acquired by K-Force. So you had a lot of the human element involved. Um, and so I, I benefited from the fact that I was not from any of the 12 companies, that I was a new guy tasked with helping organization and all of that. So um, people were not uh, prone to disagree with me just because they came from Chevrolet and I came from Ford, so to speak. You know, they, I, I didn't have that baggage with me. But yes, uh, you know, refereeing and, and conducting professional meetings, uh, had so much to do with it. I, I tell clients, um, my saying on that is meetings reveal culture. And I tell my executive clients, you know, if you'll let me into your main executive meeting, introduce me, Hey, Mike's here. He's going to work with us. Um, he's going to work, you know, we're going to go through some leadership training. I said, if you'll let me in, um, I'm, I'm going to make a bold statement here, but within 15 minutes, I can find out a lot, a great deal about your company's culture. And usually it's, you know, I'm dealing with, you know, type A, high, high confidence executives like, oh, my 15 minutes, how, what can you tell? I said, well, let me, let me, let me walk you through this. I said, I'm going to show up five minutes early and I'm going to see five minutes early as the executive assistant set up the projector is the, is the technology ready to go. Um, if there's supposed to be, you know, water or refreshments there, is that good to go? Are the lights on or is that room ready to receive people? Uh, vice, okay, we're all here at nine, but we've got to test now to make sure that all the technology is good. And we really do have the phone connections to the UK and the Philippines and all of that. And then I say, I sit back and I, I notice if the meeting is supposed to start at nine, did it in fact start at nine or are people straggling in at nine Oh six? So the 9am start really was a nine twelve start. And the next thing I'm looking for, is there an agenda? And typically there's no agenda. And the next thing I'm looking for is when certain individuals talk, are any of the other people in the meeting ignoring him? Are they on their iPhone? Are they texting? Are they having side conversations? Is one or more of them rolling their eyes? You know, is there, is there obvious personal animus between some of these folks? And I say, you know, 
Richard, Joe, Fred, Sally, uh, usually I can see or not see all of those things and more within 15 minutes. And if I, if I see or do not see what I'm looking for, um, I can pretty much estimate where the culture is going to surface if I dig a little, little bit deeper. And, and that usually, you know, that usually gets them nodding their head like, and I hadn't thought about that. Uh, and I'm, I'm just going to be honest with you, Mike, we're, we're, I am going to let you in the executive meeting next Friday. And I'm going to tell you right up front, it starts at eight, but it probably is not going to start at eight. So please don't judge me too hardly, you know? So, you know, that they have that Marine, you know, stereotype where I expect them to march in at seven fifty nine and do facing <laughs> movements and, you know, sing the Marine Corps hymn and all of that. And so, uh, it's, it's, it was good, but you know, that that's one of those things while we're on the topic of this meetings, reveal culture. Um, this is one of the things that I tell the client, you know, the, the leader, look, this is something that is so easy for you to fix that just by saying it and by leading by example, I've seen companies with years of haphazard meetings in a rel within, within two or three weeks, people are saying, I like this. I like, I, I like being on time. I like that everybody's engaged. I like that we've got an agenda. I like this. I can prepare for this meeting and, and, and we're, having, we're having productive, more productive meetings in an hour than our previous two or three hour meetings because we were just wandering with no direction, no, no end state for the meeting and all of that. So I would like to tell you that this is my own unique skills. All of this was borrowed from other sources and and mine at the front was you know the military the marine corps the great companies i've been able to work with all do they all do the similar basics it's it's all the similar basics the the, the metaphor i use is all doctors have different specialties but they're all dealing with the same human physiology and anatomy whether it's a surgeon an internal medicine guy a psychologist the brain is the brain, the spinal cord is the spinal cord, the circulatory system is the same, and they all have that fundamental grounding in basic human anatomy and physiology. And the meetings and the benefit that it can be gained from them all rely on, I mean, I didn't rattle them all off, I don't think, because I don't have the checklist in front of me, but it's on time, fully prepared, engaged, agenda. We don't speak out of turn. We, we In fact, in my company, we had a we had a rule, a standing rule. There was no cell phones, no laptops allowed on the table. You just yeah. didn't even bring it. You just didn't even bring it because there was one exception. If someone's wife was having a baby or some of the, the child was sick, they would come in and say, "Fellas, listen, you know, ladies and gents, I, I've got my cell phone here. It's on silent, but my my child is sick and I, I'm waiting for a call, or he's actually in the hospital or whatever." And we'd say, "Yeah, no problem." Well, sure enough, his phone would go off. Halfway through the meeting, he'd pick the phone up and leave. But we knew that. Or my wife's having a baby and I think she might go into labor. You know, those kind of things. Other than that, everybody know. And that, we started as an executive team with that technique. And that became the standing operating procedure for the entire company. Yeah. And, uh, and the, the leverage that it was able to provide, the benefit, um, fantastic. And I've seen, you know, we had company meetings where we had, you know, maybe a couple thousand people in an auditorium, an auditorium for two days. And I can tell you, if you looked out from the rear, there was nobody on phones, nobody. Wow. I must early be on, er, <laughs> early, early on, early on a couple, early on a couple people made the unfortunate 
you know, move of doing that, checking their phone, salespeople want to see if that, you know, and uh, I remember distinctly the, uh, the CEO uh, was on stage and he said, you there, get out, get out. If it's that important, I believe you go out, get out and, and go talk. And naturally he was mortified and he left and uh, I saw the whole audience kind of sit up, you know, basically wanted to say, not me, boss. I, I see no, no phone here, you know, but he only did that once and it was appropriate. And he basically was saying, no phones means no phones. We've got people up here that have prepared these briefs for weeks. They're talking to you. These are your colleagues. Listen to them. The very least you're going to give them is the very most of your attention. And so it really was, a, it was a company culture and, yeah. uh, People from but, other but, cultures, but yeah, but yeah, yeah. Sorry, go on. Gonna... People from other companies, we'd have to brief them up front, like, "Hey, whatever you do, don't bring a phone to a meeting, uh, yeah. because you'll you'll get tightened up pretty quickly about that." This is our culture, mm-hmm. and uh, and typically, when other people got here from other companies, Richard, they would say, "Oh, this is so refreshing. It's so refreshing to know that the meeting's really going to start on time, and that it's going to be well organized, and that everybody's going to get their say." And even as even more importantly, we're all going to leave that meeting knowing when is the next meeting? What are my deliverables? What's expected of me before the next meeting? And what do I personally, what's my part in the next meeting? And, and again, I, it's, it's, it's not Mike Etor magical stuff here. It's just, it's fundamental anatomy and physiology, so to speak. Right. Yeah. Um, and this this challenge with with something you say in the book, right? You, you said leadership over culture over strategy over tactics. Yeah, many of us have heard of this. You know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. But we that that was relatively new to me. This idea, and you've expressed it brilliantly in that story you just shared. This re, really leadership, right, is upstream of culture. Yes. And if the leaders are setting certain examples, then as you you know, as you just described, the whole culture of the company follows. You know, we're we're sort of we're herd animals in that respect, aren't we? And we're constantly looking yes. at cues from, yes. from our leaders. Yes, yes. You know, the, uh, the, the saying that you're, you just mentioned, I, I put out in a single line and I use the greater symbol, as you've That's seen. Right. It's leadership is greater than culture. Culture is greater than strategy. Strategy is greater than tactics. And I have, I have never, and I defy anyone, to, to tell me about a problem that exists in the tactics bucket or the strategy bucket or the culture bucket, Richard, that doesn't in some way, shape, or form emanate and originate from the leadership bucket. Like, well, we've got a bad strategy. Well, that means you've got bad executives. You've got poor planners. Well, our culture sucks, whatever. Uh, this, I wish that. Well, that means your leaders are, are tolerating uh, sexual harassment or racism or whatever the case may be. So I, that, that leadership, uh, culture, strategy, tactics, that was the result of me going, I, I went to a leadership seminar to learn. And one of the exercises was to provide your definition of, of the importance of leadership in a single sentence. And that's what I came up with. And, and, and I dovetail with that, um, I actually, I publish it out on LinkedIn and I, and I, I put my ugly mug on there. And I, if it's my quote, and one of them is the, the quote that you, Peter Drucker, you know, leadership 
uh, it's it's culture for breakfast, you know. Uh, or you know, say the quote again uh, that you. So that the Drucker quote is "culture eats strategy for breakfast," but yes, it's like yes. You're, you're, yes. You're, so yeah, so what eats culture for breakfast? Yeah, yes, because I'm right? I'm I trying to remember his quote and yeah. mine. So yes, right underneath that. So I put Drucker's quote, and right underneath that, I add my own piece and leadership is the table the meal is served on hmm. that's that's my way of reinforcing peter drucker is absolutely right and i don't know peter drucker um i hope i would get along well with him but i i think that if he looked at my addition underneath leadership is the table that the meal is served on i think he would say oh absolutely absolutely so it always comes back to leadership no matter what we're trying to achieve in any organization um Leadership, I think, is, you know, the the mortar that holds the bricks of that building together. You could have, as you know, Richard, I use this this example, um, the difference between a building lasting for a couple hundred years and not crumbling is almost never the bricks. It's almost always the mortar. The mortar was inferior and now water is seeped in and the mortar starts crumbling and now you have unstable walls and you have to demolish that building. If the if the mortar is good, man, those, that building will stand for for centuries. So leadership, I always ask people to envision the IT department, the marketing department, finance, you know, whatever, human resources. Imagine those as the bricks, and think, you know, I've got really good bricks. And now I say, now liquefy your executive team and pour them in as the mortar between those. And the best mortar, as you know. It needs to be hard and flexible at appropriate times. It's got to it's got to withstand cold weather, hot weather, different kinds of elements, pressure, and and I I find people say you know that's a, that's a pretty good example you know of you know it's it's not the bricks, it's not your IT department that is failing, it's not the finance, it's not your sales force. I always suspect the mortar initially, always the mortar. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, uh, yeah, it's a powerful metaphor. And I like the other thing you've talked there is about, you know, sometimes it needs to be hard, you know, sometimes it, you know, it needs to flex. Yeah. Uh, and your example of the, the guy throwing the guy out the auditorium who's on his phone, right? That's, that's what you talk about, enforcing the value. Sometimes you've got to be yeah. hard. Um, so what are some examples of, of, of the, the flip side of that? Then when, when do you have to be, you know, when do you have to be soft? What, what's the, what's the, the flip of that? That's a great question. Um, as I matured, Richard, you know, as a, as a young Marine, we were just like, you know, uh, Marines do not cram uh, a 10 second conversation into 10 minutes. So we're very direct and it's like, okay, Etor, you're a, uh, your squad blew that one. Uh, not a good show. Don't do it again. And, and of course, that usually won't work well in the business world. And so that's when you have to say, okay, look, you know, things didn't turn out as well as expected. And why do you think that's the case? And I learned that um, now there were some people like my boss at K-Force, uh, who I thought would have been a great Marine. He was able to talk to me like that. He was able to say, Mike, not a good thing. I know you didn't plan that. It didn't work out well. What do you think? And, and I would say, yeah, you know, and we would talk. And I didn't need that 30-second ego massage and soft sell. But I was aware that other people did need that, that he had to spend 
45 minutes making sure that what he was about to say in the politest manner possible was actually taken as non-threatening and non-indictment because some people cannot take any criticism. So you've got the guy like me that can take blunt criticism. Mike, it sucked. Fix it. You know, <laughs> you know, I can take that. I don't like it, but I can take it. If it's real, it's like I have to own up to it. And then the far end of that spectrum is I can take zero. Even if I know it's right, I don't want to hear anything about me. And most people are kind of in the middle. And the, the seasoned leader, and I think as you get more mature and maybe blow it a few times by being hard when you should be soft and soft when you should be hard, um, I think the seasoned leader has a better fingertip touch on when to turn those valves, so to speak. And I want to make sure I clarify something, Richard. When I say hard, uh, I want to make sure, especially coming from my background, um, it is never associated with raising your voice or in in intimidating someone or anything like that. Um, and I want to make sure that, you know, when, when my, oh, if Mike's going to go at somebody hard, no, no, I, that means I'm going to talk to somebody professionally and I'm going to use those values. about reckness and, and back to the focus of the mission and the, and the, uh, the meeting. And the focus of the meeting is the plan did not work well. And, you know, some people try and divert and, and uh, let's, first of all, let's keep this about the project and let's keep this about you, not about how Harry and marketing let you down. Let's, the fact is this project, it's not going well. And, and while there may be other slices of it that isn't going well, that are not going well. The fact is your slice is definitely not going well. So talk to me, what's going on? What would we do differently? What can I do to help you? Are, do you have enough resources? Do you have enough cooperation from other people? Do I need to intervene? And usually people will realize, okay, Mike's not here to bash me. I'm not getting fired, but it clearly is not going well. And I think once people realize that and, and they got used to my style and other people's styles, then then they took ownership immediately and they become, they became much more closer to the direct end of the scale than the don't hurt my feelings scale. But I would say to leaders early on, you have to gauge everybody and don't make the mistake of thinking that everybody uh, is able to receive direct blunt feedback. If that's your preferred style, just because Mike can prefers it, actually just get to it. Let me know. I know it's not going, I just get to it. So, so I can own up to it and ask you for help. You know, not everybody uh, comes from the same background, personality-wise, or they've been in companies where you know, it, if you didn't do good or something was going on, it really was a personal attack. And then you know, of course, the boss uttered those those nasty words like, "Hey, this isn't going well." I mean, this could mean your job. I mean, once you say something like that to somebody, you've got the wound. You know, you've given the guy the wound, and you can put a bandaid on it, but it's it'll never heal because now right. he's he or she is goosey about every single decision. And, you know, I know we're straying a little bit, Richard, but when you have people fearing for their jobs with everything they say or do, that organization will never, ever come close to achieving its, its maximum potential. Right. Now, I mean, and Yeah. And another, the reading I've done around the Toyota culture, which of course is um, venerated, right? By many people, especially in the tech industry in yeah. terms of, you know, how they're so adaptive. Um, that's a core principle of of 
the Toyota production system or what became lean is, you know, you've, people have got to feel secure in their jobs first. Yeah. Before you yes. can, you can ask them to adapt the ways that they work in order to achieve efficiencies. Of course, they're not going to be effective in doing yes. that if they're fearful of the job. So, yeah. Yeah. Interestingly, there's another uh, Toyota, obviously Japanese company. I use another Japanese company as the other side of that coin, Toshiba. Toshiba had a huge accounting scandal uh, a decade or more so ago. And uh, I, I, we're talking about a global company that was fudging the books. They were, they were lying. And it, it, it resulted in all of the executives and leaders getting fired, business units going away, vanishing. And the company was fined billions with a B, billions of dollars in multiple countries. And the, 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 so I show a little video when I teach and then I, I freeze it right after they said, somebody says in, in Toshiba, there was a culture in which bad news was prohibited. It's like, so we didn't really meet our sales targets for this quarter. Uh, that's not acceptable. So we're going to, eh, we're going to fudge them a little bit. And everybody from the sales folks to the auditors and all of that, they all lied for so long that they couldn't sustain the line. It was more like, it was like an Enron situation. You know, they just, so you have, so it was, uh, it was terrible, you know? So the companies that, uh, that, that have a promote a culture of trust and what I call and what others call, it's not my term, Richard, you know, there's a speaking truth to power. Um, everybody says it, it's easier said than done because truth sometimes stings a little bit. But with when the people with the real power, the leaders and the executives, or the people with the informal power, you know, and not everybody's got a title to be an influencer, if they if they set a culture where they don't really want to hear the truth, that speak the truth quote is just it's often just painting on a wall. It's nothing, it's meaningless. You know, it's 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 like a restaurant with a really nice sign, but you go inside and the place just is terrible and you're, I'm not eating any food from here. It's dirty. It's the food's bad. And, you know, so uh, it's, it's substance over image is what I'm saying. Yeah. But, but how do we have that culture emerge? So I'm just thinking in your situation, say, you're, you know, the CIO of, of K-Force or, and uh, you know, you're going to hold people to account. So people know they've got a meeting with Mike, you're going to ask them, you know, what's going on with this project? How do you have them not be tempted to fudge their numbers because they yes. know yeah. that if they've not hit their numbers, you're going to call them on it. So how do you create that environment where on the one hand people are held accountable, but they're not fearful and they're not, they're not incentivized to lie. It's a great question. And I'm going to maybe contradict myself. Whenever I took over an organization, even in the Marine Corps, I would talk to people and say, look, we, we don't know each other. But you all know this. You've all been trained to this. We're going to make mistakes. I'm not perfect. The one thing I will promise to you, though, is I will never uh, willingly uh, breach integrity ever. And if I did that and got caught, I would expect to be relieved of command, fired. My career is over. On the other hand, I can tolerate mistakes, Marines. What I will never tolerate is an intentional, willful breach of your integrity. If you get caught lying, 
cheating, stealing, or tolerating or covering up someone that does, I will do my very best to remove you from this unit and get you removed from the Marine Corps. So I'm only going to say this one time. You'll never hear me say this again unless there's some unfortunate situation where someone compromises their integrity. And then what you're going to see from me is exactly what I'm promising you. And, and, I, I, and I say, remember now, on this one, I have zero defects mentality. And it starts with me. It starts with me. You're going to see me make mistakes. You might even think I'm not a good leader or whatever, but you will never see me lie, cheat, or steal, or, or otherwise do something dishonest within the system. I won't abuse my power and all of that. That correlates and translates very well to the business world. So I am, I'm working with clients right now where we cover this, that, you know, assuming that you're all ethical and all that, you know, you're the, you're the executive team. You have got to agree to this and you've got to live it. And this is one where you've got to disseminate this throughout the company and say, you know, we're going to make mistakes. We're, you know, we've got ambitious plans and all that. The thing we won't tolerate is breaches of integrity. And I find that uh, most companies really, uh, well, actually, all, I've never heard an executive look at me and say, oh, Mike, that's crap. We're not doing that. You know, we don't want, you know, we, we prefer to fudge, you know. But it starts, in fact, I just put a presentation again, as I was saying, Richard, for a client tomorrow. And, and, the, and the, the key concept I'm introducing them tomorrow is the term tone from the top. Uh, when I was working at, you know, at K-Force, I was a publicly traded, you know, C-level executive. And so a couple of times a year is the audit committee comes in from, you know, the big five consulting firm and they have to interview me and they say, Mike, what do you think the tone from the top is? You're at the top. And I say, oh, it's simple. The tone from the top is we do not lie, cheat or steal. We do not fudge sales numbers. We do not falsify reports. We do not do that. And they say, well, okay, sounds good. We hear that from all executives. Do you think that people down on the front lines would be able to repeat that. And I say verbatim because we repeat it to them often. So there's a few things where in K-Force where we, we absolutely insisted on rigid terms and definitions. And we called that special trust and confidence. And that is we were operating off of a special trust and confidence that we're all, even from the CEO down to the mailroom clerk, is they have different widely varying roles but they're all expected at the core to have the same character and integrity. And, uh, and they said, one time the woman said, you know, Mike, I, I, you're right. I, I actually, part of this process is I have to go down, down the line, so to speak, and talk to lower level people. And he, she said, you're absolutely right. The two or three things that your executive team insists on rigid one line definitions, your people really do know them. And I say, well, we repeat them during meetings. We, we have painting on the wall. We have plaques. We, we, we not only just say them, we continually reinforce them. And more important, when they see them being violated, action is taken swiftly and in the exact same manner that it was advertised that it would be taken. And people respond well to that. People like, I think, to be held accountable and they really like to be held accountable when they know everybody is being held accountably, accountable equally. Right. Yeah. Now that, uh, that makes a lot of sense. And it also challenges what you were saying about your experience of being trained initially in the Marines. 
is that that there's this very strong focus on these on these core values and that was one of your reflections right moving into moving into business world is that there wasn't this intense focus on right. on values and getting to the core of of what we expect of you as a character in this yeah. business and that yeah and that was a difference yeah i i yes i yes in general i agree with you i want to make sure because i i tell this to all the the Marines and servicemen from other branches that are about to get out, I said, you know, don't look down your nose at civilians and businessmen. I've met many that are smarter than hell. And I will say this, Richard, to your question. I find that the vast majority of people in business are absolutely ethical. And despite the lack of ethical training and, you know, ab the vast majority of them are absolutely ethical, honest, do not lie do not fudge reports, do not do any of that. Um, sadly, the people that I find that, that do exhibit this kind of behavior, sadly, often have been taught to do it. So when we at K-Force hired new recruiters, new salespeople from other companies, we were very cognizant that, hey, some of these other companies actually promote some some nasty practices you know like if you're supposed to make 10 you know recruiting calls a day and you only made eight yeah just invent the other two just to keep my boss off my back you know just say you made 10 calls and so we would always talk to them and and they would say good thank you i i hear you and i'm gonna let you know i've been some places in the past where uh it was 10 calls whether you made 10 calls or not I said, no, we don't do that here. If you didn't make the 10 calls, we want to know why. What happened? Are we giving you enough time? Did you get held up, you know, unduly in traffic or at a client? You know, we want to know why, you know? Um, and so I always tell people, err on the side. You have to lead by example from the top, the tone from the top, but tell people what you expect from them in the way of character, ethics, and integrity. And 99.9% .9 of them will will within 10 minutes say, I can do that. Right. It costs nothing, you know, to, 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 to have that conversation. And most people I think are absolutely equipped from childhood, their parents and their teachers taught them, right. They know right from wrong. Yeah. No, that's, uh, that's very true. But, and, and it has me reflecting on one of my, my formative experience professionally was I, I joined Arthur Anderson, right. The, that was then the accounting firm, not long after university. One of the things you talk about, you know, when you join the Marines is that, you know, they tell you you're an elite, right? They, they build your self-esteem. And, you know, that's really important. Uh, and that's what they did in Arthur Anderson, right? You, you're, you're the cream of the cream. We've selected you from the best universities. Yeah. You know, you, you, you joined this, you know, global firm and, and all of that, right? So all of that side of the picture was, 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 <laughs> was drilled into us right from the start. But, but almost nothing that certainly that I can recall about this point about integrity and ethics and, yeah. Is it a great surprise that that was a firm that ended up getting caught in the county? Uh, and was, of course, of course, most people are highly ethical, but you know, it's still interesting that that isn't drilled into people in the same way yes. as, as the message that you're great was. That's a great example. Um, that happened when I was new to the business world, Richard. And you know, I didn't know about Arthur, Arthur Anderson until I got with K-Force, but you know, there were, uh, Arthur Anderson just had a famous uh, reputation. Uh, remember the old saying, no one ever got fired for bringing in Arthur Anderson. 
you know, as a, like if your company's in trouble, the board of directors will almost always say, well, okay, Mike's doing a smart thing. He's bringing in Arthur Anderson, you know? Um, I like to say that back then, Arthur Anderson was the, was the Marine Corps of the consulting world. I mean, you know, uh, and by the way, the UK has a top-notch, you know, Royal, Royal Marines, top-notch. So I'm acknowledging if anybody's living, uh, listening, uh, the, the Royal, British Royal Marines are, are, are cream of the cream, you know, top. But Arthur Anderson, I mean, this was pe- people, to your point, I mean, how many people aspired to get into Arthur Anderson and did not, and you were feeling good because you got in there. And it's amazing you're telling, well, it's not amazing, you're telling me you had no mention of character and integrity. And Arthur Anderson, the mighty giant, literally that branch went out of business because of systemic breaches of integrity and character. And it was, people were here in the United States were beyond disappointed. It was like Arthur Anderson. I mean, this would be like Catholics finding out that the Pope had done something wrong. I mean, Arthur Anderson, Arthur Anderson was cheating. It was unthinkable. And the company, uh, Simply, I know they survived one of them and all of that, and somebody else bought their name, but largely speaking, the company vaporized overnight. As you know, it was a very, it was a very, I I I lived through that, right? I mean, yeah, it was a very quick collapsed, yeah. Top of the game, I think it was a matter of weeks before it was gone. Mm. Gone. So that was a, that was a huge thing to me. Um, And, and one of the, again, things that showed me, you know, Mike, this character and integrity and ethics thing that you've been uh, forged in as a, as a Marine leader uh, is absolutely applicable uh, out here in the business world. And, and again, in the defense of business people, I find that vast, the, the overwhelming majority of them are, are absolutely have great character, ethics, integrity. Where they fall short is having discussions about it. Yeah. As, Having having discussions and saying we're all ethical and all of that, but we're a small group, so we're all on the same sheet of music, so to speak. We've got thirty five other leaders in that are in these meetings. Well, if we want them to share our character, ethics, and our standards of this, we need to talk to them about it. We need to talk to them about it so that you know we're we're all on the same page on this, so to speak. That's where people fall short, and that's. Primarily what I do is cause the conversations. You know, I tell people when they hire me as, you know, if I'm going to t- coach the executive team, I said, you know, at the end, I'm not going to give you a refund, but at the end, you'll realize that most of the goodness that's going to come from this is me causing you to have conversations that in hindsight, you'll say, you know, we had all the answers, but until Mike directed us to have the conversation, we just never had the conversation. And we, we really were aligned, but we never talked about it. So if we weren't aligned on it, how do we expect our subordinate teammates to, you know, our other branches and, and offices, how do we expect them to be any more aligned than we are? And so that's my real, you know, that's, that's how I can steal business from myself is, you know, the answers are product pretty much within people. They just got to decide what's important and get the other executives and top leaders to agree and then they have to relentlessly, relentlessly hammer it home uh, through their own example uh, and analogies and parables and anecdotes. They just have to, it has to be lived and breathed throughout the organization. And, uh, and so we're back to that leadership quadrant of leadership 
culture, strategy, tactics. If you want a culture that's ethical and all that, it's, it starts to tone from the top. Yeah. And how do you get that? It's having the conversations, making space for those conversations. Just gotta as have you the, experienced in the Marines. Got to have the conversations. That, you know, if you show me, I'm being kind of cute here. You know, I'm not a psychologist or psychiatrist or a human behavior specialist or anything. But, you know, my, my amateur observation is whenever there's problems, whenever there's more, there's two or more human beings in the same room, same family, whatever, Whenever there's problems, 99% of them arise from a lack of communication. You know, that, you know, the, the husband knows puts it off for five years to a point now where a, what I call a five pound problem is now a five ton problem. And your equipment can't handle a five ton problem. So that's, that's when I use, tell people is have the conversations Deal with the sickness before it becomes a disease because sicknesses are a whole lot easier to take care of than diseases. Some diseases are terminal. And if you let your company go and it's just a terminally ill culture, well, that's really hard to turn around. Usually you have to carve out huge swaths of people because you've, you've got You've, uh, you know, I say 99.9%, but if you get that 0.01% in your company, boy, they can poison things. You know, they can, they can give your company gangrene, so to speak, stepping on that rusty nail can tube the whole body, so to speak. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so we're just building up this picture of trust-based le trust leadership. So there's something about accountability. There's something about having these straight conversations. There's something about this relentless focus on having the conversation about character and ethics. What is it? Is there anything else um, as a component of building this the trust-based leadership within organizations? There's a lot. And off the top of my head, um, I think it always, you know, the advice I always give leaders is, you know, it, you know, it's aside from character, integrity, ethics, uh, tone from the top, it all can be contained in a basket uh, that's labeled leadership by example. And a term that the Marines use is for all of our leaders from, you know, corporals, non-commissioned officers, all the way up through generals is Marine leaders show Marines what right looks like. And that's what we were tasked with is show your men what right looks like you want to, you want them to be fit and strong show them what right looks like like you know i'll tell you what that lieutenant is stronger than hell he can run like a reindeer i mean he's 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 walking the walk and running the run so to speak show them what right looks like in character integrity everything if you do that chances are it, it's contagious and people will will follow a leader worth following it's no different in the business world business leaders have to show people what right looks like. And in my book, I mean, I thought so highly of the term trust, trust-based leadership that I trademarked it. I trademarked the term because, you know, I use all, as you know, I use all sorts of analogies and examples and metaphors. And, and I, I tell, I'm probably going to create a, I should create a graphic of this. If, if character and ethics and integrity, Richard, is the bedrock of which a, a company is built on trust 
is the next layer that must be present. I tell clients this, if you don't, you, you, can, you can have character, ethics, integrity, but if you don't get this next layer of, of bedrock, so to speak, trust, if you don't learn to trust yourself, trust your peers and colleagues, and promote a culture of trust throughout the organization in a 360 degree manner, I tell them you need to end this engagement with you right now because everything else I tell you in the future is for naught. I can teach you leadership techniques. I can teach you, I can share wisdom. I can do all this with you. But if you're not going to operate from a measure of trust, you'll, you will never reach your potential as a leader and your organization will never because you'll be up there talking a good game. But at the end of the day, your people don't trust you. You know, you're saying, come to me with problems. It's like, I'm not coming to him with problems. The last person that did that got shot in the face. You know, you kidding me? You know, I'm not doing that. So it's trust, trust-based leadership. So as you know, you got my book there. It's, it's the title of the book. I've referred to it ad nauseum in the book. And it is, uh, it is the, the charter, so to speak, for everything I do leadership-wise. Trust, trust, trust. Everything's based on trust. Right, right. And do you do you have a story you can share, like either either where you didn't trust others or trusted trust yourself, uh, and and it caused you a problem, or where you were you you were able to trust and and you had a, a major impact in that way? Yeah, I've got many. I mean, I, I maybe I won't say a, a specific story, but I I learned uh, as a young remember I was in, an enlisted marine before I was an officer. And the, the, I would say one of the biggest things, Richard, that developed me as a leader, and I was a very young corporal and sergeant. I was very, very young in charge of people much older than me. Um, my leaders did not care how young I was. They trusted me. They didn't care I was a 19-year-old sergeant, which is kind of scandalous at the time, 19 years old, you know. Um, they did not care about that. They expected me not to be as experienced as the 27 year old sergeant, but to be absolutely as uh, the character, integrity, motivation, planning, you know, looking out for the troops and all of that. So they trusted me and I had to earn the trust of some of my Marines who at the time I had no combat experience. And some of these guys had been to Vietnam twice. I mean, they were fighting in the jungles of Vietnam when I was in the seventh grade. And so you talk about intimidating, but I went in, I was clearly, uh, you know, they had gotten out of the service and then came back. And so they had lost a lot of rank. They were kind of starting over. So I was their boss. But once I showed them, hey, obviously, I don't know what I don't know. And, uh, you know, you've got so much experience but they saw that I trusted them and then they realized, you know, he's young, but he's good. He's, he's looking out for us. And then they simply banded around me. And I think in hindsight, they refused to let me fail. They said about their mission was he's young, but he's our Sergeant and he, he's not an ass to us. And he actually fixed our pay problems and took care of us. And we're going to take care of him. So that's when they would start taking me aside and say, hey, look, look Sergeant, uh, you might want to think about this. I mean, I know you said that, but you might want to think about this. I'm like, yeah, okay, let me think about it. And I'm like, he's absolutely right. I was getting ready to make myself the wrong kind of famous on that one. And they saved me. 
And so my my seniors were amazed, like you know, they were just amazed that I could get these wild men to comply. They, they were amazed, like, what are you doing? I said, I mean, I'm just treating them well. Like, we've never seen this before. These, this is a hard bunch. They gave me all the problem children, you know. This is a hard, hard, you know, because these guys got out, stayed in the business, you know, civilian work for like five years, then came back in and very quickly realized, man, this isn't the Marine Corps I remember. I remember like fighting and all. And now it's peacetime and I got to get a haircut and shine my boots. So within six months, they already realized I am doing my three years and getting out. So they were kind of surly. And uh, they knew just how far to go without getting in trouble. But they were a they were a tough lot. But thank God I inherited them, and thank God they were patient with me. So you can see the trust from above. Uh, you know, in the Dale Carnegie uh, anecdote is you know give a person a reputation to live up to. My wow. senior Marines officers and enlisted you know leaders gave gave Sergeant Etor a reputation to live up to. Like, we don't care how old you are. You know, you've accepted the promotion. You're a, you're a Marine Corps sergeant. Have at it, you know. And they were there to help me, but at part, I just had to have at it, you know. And I had to earn the trust of the Marines underneath me. And I did that by everything we've talked about so far. Leadership by example. I was, leadership by example was easy for me to do. Content, like real substance of knowing how to do things tactically. Oh, I was a baby with with people that were fighting when I was a child. And so why wouldn't I listen to them? And so they taught me stuff. And I like to say that some of the things they taught me saved the lives of Marines in combat 20 years later, you know? And so they, they were, those less, they, they shared some things with me that I never read in a book. It was their own personal experiences that stuck with me that, some a couple of them are in my book and i'm going to write books on combat leadership someday and a whole bunch of what they told me richard will be in those books so mm. yeah i i can't say enough about trust from above trust from below um and everything else took care of itself right right but th that integrity piece comes through again right you're you're not tr like pretending that you've got more experience than them or you know more than right. them Right. That that's in a self that's an expression of integrity, right? And and it also you, yes. you talk about that when you got the job at K Force, right? You'd invite yeah. people into your office, technical people, to teach you technical yes. or, or give you technical yes. knowledge. But yes. that's about building trust, isn't it? You know, I've got integrity here. I don't understand yes. what you you know, but I'm I'm willing to learn from you, right? It's the a teacher yes, scholar it's a, relationship. You talk about. Absolutely, it's a great story. So um, I was with K Force a few years. And our internal IT department, about 180 people, um, big technology department, because this, our, our company was tech intensive with placements and splitting profits and things like that with, with you know, a thousand recruiters and account managers. The bottom line is um, the senior executives decided that the CIO a chief information officer in charge of our technology group um, had to leave the company. When that happened, he was the second CIO to be terminated in a two-year period. So out of sheer desperation, they, were they told me this. They were at a meeting like, well, what are we going to do? And someone said, what about ETOR? And everybody was like, what? And then someone said, I mean, he he's a good leader. I mean, we... You know, the technologists haven't worked out for us. Let's, 
And everybody said, well, let's, let's give them a try. And so they, they came to me and offered it to me. And as soon as they offered it to me, I was, I'll take it. And, and the president said, well, geez, Mike, that's kind of confident. You want to think about it? I said, no, I don't want to think about it at all. I said, it's going to work. And he goes, okay, I hope so. Why do you say that? I said, I'm a client. I'm a customer of that department. I suspect they've got good people and I certainly can't add any technical value, but I think they're very disorganized. They're not planned well. Uh, I think there's some, some personality issues there. So I said, I'll tell you what, Bill, if you and the other executives give me the resources I need and the support I need, this will work out well. And he said, I promise you, you'll get both. And then they introduced me the next day to the group. And uh, when I introduced you to our new CEO, and they, these people knew me. And they knew this guy doesn't have a technology background. And uh, Richard, you could hear a stone drop in that room. It was like, and, I, and I, it was my turn to talk. And I said, listen, um, I'm as surprised to be here as you are to see me. Obviously, I'm not here to add technical value, but I am a very experienced leader and I think I can help. And what, but what that means is I really need you to, to help me, to be honest with me. And after the, so I was telling them, I, I'm not going to come. I can't tell you what servers to pick or what technology stack to, I can't tell you that. What I was saying is, but I know we have to do that. And I know that you guys are fighting about that and you're not. You know, some people are saying, will you pick a stack already so we can buy it so I can implement it? We're not going to hit our deadlines. And so that's what I caused. But when we went, when, when the, when the boss stood up and said, all right, well, Mike, will get with you and uh, have a great day. I mean, everybody filed out of that room as if an execution had been announced, you know, and there was only one elevator going upstairs. And I went out there and I could just hear mumblings, you know, like, well, you know, you, you know, just. And so then I just proceeded to have meetings. And, and to my earlier point, I had a great amount of meetings with the entire group because I didn't even want my message to get diluted from the five or six VPs that I had reporting me. And they were all good people, not that, but I, some things my team needed to hear from me, ergo the character and integrity and, and a new one for them at the time. Listen, I, I know your IT folks and I respect that. I don't know what you don't know, but I want to make sure you, you understand something right off the bat. We, as a, as a technology group, we do not exist to spend money and do f incredibly interesting, challenging IT projects. And don't get me wrong. I want you to do that. We're going to get to do that. But I want to make sure that you understand right from the start. The only reason why we exist is to technically enable our sales force and support units. That is the only reason why everyone out there staring at me right now exists to technically enable and make their jobs better so they can make money that pays our salaries. I said, we're not second-class citizens, but sometimes support units lose the picture of where they are in the grand scheme of things. And I found they had no problem with that. When that message got out and their attitudes in some respects changed towards the sales force, uh, that was magic. Now the sales force realized, okay, they're not arguing with me. They, they are saying, well, what's the end state? 
okay, the end state is I spend an hour and a half a day using data, putting data entry of the people I talk to. Isn't there a faster way? And the technologist would say, we got it. We'll be back to you next week with some ideas. And so you had the, the frontline fighters saying, I, I need bullets that can penetrate armor. And then you had the support people saying, give us a while to think about this. It wasn't the support people saying, here, here's new bullets, use them. And the fighters saying, no, these suck. They're not good. Are you kidding me? They don't do well. They get moist and they, and they're, they're having misfires. We're getting killed because our weapons are jamming, you know? So it was a perfect military analogy, but that's, that's the value I added, added right up front. And I was a, a publicly traded CIO for five of the 15 years I was in the company. And one of the directors that worked for me, great, great person, absolutely not ready to be the CIO at that point, heavy technical background, worked for me for about five years. And five years later, he became the CIO. Now, he still reported me, but five years later, he became the CIO. And several years later, he left and became the CIO of a $5 billion company. And so what I'm saying is somebody that I inherited that, that actually was, was not capable of what I was doing as a non-technical CIO, several years later, he performed as a CIO at a level I never had. I like to think I could do it, but I didn't do it. I was the CIO of a billion dollar company. He was the CIO of a $5 billion company and, and is still doing well. Now I claim to have taught him everything he knows, Richard, but he, he's, he's not admitting that, you know, and I did send him my book and he said, I hope you don't mind. I turn it upside down. So I don't see your face. You know, it's <laughs> on my desk, but I'm not going to lie to you. That's kind of an appetizing vision before lunch, you know? So, so it's a great story, but uh, to those listening out there, I would say, uh, leadership, uh, organizational skills, and the ability to, to, to synergize and synchronize the unit's efforts toward a desired end state. If you can do that, uh, you're going to do well in the business world. Right, right. Fantastic. Well, wonderful stories. Uh, it's been a fabulous conversation. I've laughed a lot, uh, which I love. Um, so just before we close out, for people watching, I'll put the book up once more. Trust-based leadership, Marine Corps, Marine Corps leadership concepts for today's business leaders. Mike, thank you so much. Uh, it's I, I just feel like I've got this distilled wisdom uh, that I am definitely going to take away uh, and chew on, and I've got a lot from. I hope my listeners uh, get the same. Well, I thank so, you for the opportunity, Richard. Like I said, I earlier when we talked before we were recording, I've. I've got the best job in the world. All I want to do with the rest of my life is help leaders develop. So if I've planted a seed or shared a nugget that helps somebody out there listening, I made, made my whole day. I love doing this. And again, I, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.